Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. This morning we continue to look at the subject of biblical discernment, and especially as we gather here to discuss and interact on how best we can promote this biblical discipline, especially in the practice of the churches in Africa today. As we begin, let me share with you some brief frustration of a nuclear family, a husband, a wife, and a daughter. They all are Christians, at least they claim to be. Now, for this husband, in order to succeed in business, by faith he has to sow a seed of his car and the school fees that would have gone towards his children's education in order to receive a hundredfold, as has been promised by the man of God. Now, that's not surprising. We all know it's familiar. You need to get rich. You are told you need to sow a seed by the man of God. But his wife, meanwhile, is at home when some nice-looking Mormon missionaries come knocking on her door. They share what they call the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, and she believes it. They talk about the need to have a living prophet pointing to Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, and she excitedly believes it too. But in the process of this excitement and of receiving the restored gospel, she ignores their views of polytheism and their work-based salvation. They have a daughter who is at university, and while at university she meets a prophet who speaks at her university lunch hour fellowship, and who privately singles her out, convincing her of God's special calling to be his spiritual partner. Before she knows it, she has left school, she now moves with the prophet wherever he goes, and sooner or later she has married him. Now, this story sounds familiar if you are living within this Africa's context, especially in the midst of emerging prophetism in Africa. It's not a surprise. In the context of emerging new alternative spiritualities and religious movements, it's not uncommon that we hear these stories no matter where we look. But what's the problem about these stories? There are two issues at least to look at very quickly. Number one is that this family of three, husband, wife, and daughter, have fallen prey to heretic teaching. Number two is that in this family we see what we call a crisis of discernment. Now for that to make sense, we need to make some definitions what we mean by heretic teaching or even discernment. One author, Bowman, who has written a book entitled Orthodox and Heresy, defines heresy as doctrine that is erroneous in such a way that Christians must divide themselves as a church from all who teach or accept it. That it is such an erroneous teaching, especially at the essential level, the foundational level of our Christian faith, that to submit to this kind of teaching would even lead one to forfeit his salvation. It is so erroneous that Christians must divide themselves from it. What about discernment? Well, again, Bowman has described discernment as the ability to identify the true nature of a spirit, doctrine, practice, or group, 
to distinguish truth from error, extreme error from slight error, the divine from the human and the demonic. Another good author, Tim Charles, who has written a book named The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment, defines it as the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. Spurgeon was commented on this definition of discernment, and he said that sometimes discernment is not even just about distinguishing right from wrong or truth from error, but it is also about distinguishing between what is right and what is almost right. And if you think about it for a moment, our greatest danger actually lies in that arena of things that seemingly look right, seemingly look Christian, use Christian terminology, sing Christian hymns, perhaps even read the Bible and pray more than an average Christian would do. Yet, in one way or another, directly or indirectly, innocently or ignorantly, deny, doubt, distort, and sometimes, if possible, seek to destroy the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Brothers and sisters, as we discuss the subject of heresy and discernment this morning, we need to remember that this is a timeless universal challenge for all of us. That from the beginning, right at the fall in Genesis 3, we have a crisis of discernment. And since then, the battle between truth and error has been raging and most likely will continue until the return of Christ. So what is our job? To develop a generation of discerning disciples who are able to tell the difference, to differentiate, to tell apart, even between those things that are closely or seemingly right, but actually are not. You will notice that, as I said yesterday, that almost every book in the New Testament, except the book of Philemon, warns believers in every age and place about the real and serious danger of heresy, and deceivers. Now what is surprising with all these warnings in the New Testament scriptures, the local church continues to avoid proactively, constructively responding to the threat and safeguarding its members by the means that God has provided in scripture. We all talk about right and wrong. We all talk about the fact that it is dangerous to be in error. Yet surprisingly, the church has not done much to teach people that ability that enables them to differentiate, to tear apart. And as a matter of fact, so many believers innocently or ignorantly have fallen into error. What are some of those present-day sources of error or confusion or harm? Well, these come from false teachers, false churches, false fellowships, some of these false teachers have been popularized by media like television, radio, and especially with the coming in of social media, it's a bushfire that is unstoppable. You will find false teaching in your bedroom, on your phone, on the internet, on the radio, in the magazine that you read, in the newspaper. It will even find you in the bathroom these days, no matter where you look. You cannot run away from false teaching. The only thing you can do is to vaccinate yourself against it, just like COVID. We have those false churches and cults, institutionalized, well-organized groups or churches 
that sometimes have skillfully trained missionaries and some of them even with books and pamphlets that are not only in the English language but in several local languages with ability to reach people that even your church can't reach because in most cases our churches are English-speaking churches. When you take your English materials, it's like giving money to a dog. But these churches and groups have produced materials in languages of the people in a way that they can reach them and are therefore having tremendous impact upon these people. But we also have disguised forms of false teaching that have come in popular fellowships. Some of these fellowships manifest themselves in spiritually unguarded Christian unions, especially on university campuses breeding grounds for false teaching and error. Young, active, energetic, passionate students with less Bible knowledge, yet eager to go. Very easy catch for the false teachers. We have unguarded lunch hour fellowships that have become the norm, and probably even to the extent of replacing churches. Now, I want you to listen to me very carefully here. Because I'm about to share something that I call a trend that perhaps some of us may not have recognized, but which I personally think is the most dangerous demonstration of false teaching in our day and age. In the past, when false teachers came, they had one goal. Divide your congregation, run away with some of your members, inoculate them into their false teaching and ideology, never to see them again. But what is happening today is that most of these churches are not stealing your members. Most of these churches, let me say, are discipling your members and planting them back in your church. What we see here, especially in the guise of lunch hour fellowships or midweek prophetic rallies, is that most of the people who are attending these rallies are fine firm members of a traditional church. By membership, by baptism, by marriage, by attendance, they are members of a traditional church. From Monday to Saturday, they are following a certain prophet or apostle in the lunch hour fellowship or midweek meetings. They are feeding on this theology of the prophet from Monday to Saturday. On Sunday, they show up for two hours for a church service where the someone might be 25 to 30 minutes if you are lucky. In some churches these days, the preaching is 15 minutes, and if you go beyond, they will warn you. Now, some of these people who have been out there the whole week, on Sunday they have showed up to listen to a 25-minute sermon at most, and guess what? Some of these people are ministers in the traditional congregation. They are leaders of worship team. They are on the intercession committees. Some of them are leading mission and evangelism in your church. But what theology do they bring as they exercise their leadership? The theology they received between Monday and Saturday. They are members of your church. Membership-wise, they belong to your church. Theologic-wise or ideology, they belong to the prophet. Before you know it, the virus has left the fellowship where it began from. It is now infecting members of your congregation who have never gone out to the fellowship. Why? These individuals go there, correct the theological virus, bring it back into your congregation, and the whole congregation is affected. That is the reality of our day, brothers and sisters. And the sooner we recognize the times we are living in, perhaps the better for us. 
Because until you accept that you are sick, you are not going to seek medication. And sadly, most of our churches would like to believe that all is well. Some will even confess positively that no harm will come upon them. But while they continue to live in fantasy and hope that has no base in scripture, congregations continue to be taken captive by error that seemingly looks Christian, but actually is not. So what is the cost of this acceptance of this disguised error and false teaching among us? Well, the end result is that we have divided churches. We have financial and sexual exploitation taking place. We have broken marriages and families in our midst. We have disillusioned and debilitated Christians who think because of their expectations and lack of grounding in scripture that God has failed them. And this results in a damaged witness to those outside the church who look at professing Christians in deception, in confusion, in chaos, and conclude that Jesus and Christianity have no real credibility or power to transform our lives. People are being exploited financially and sexually, brothers. Our first speaker mentioned something like that about rape in the name of Jesus. We have so many families that have been broken apart in the name of prophecy or revelation or visions. I know many families where which have been split simply because a prophet prophesied to one of the partners and said, your partner that you have today is not God's will for you. I had a friend of mine, a lawyer by profession, who lost a marriage of 11 years with four children. The wife went to a certain prophetic meeting, came back and said, I have been deceived for a long time. Now I know that you are not the man God meant for me. She packed out her things and went to live with the prophet. The threat is real, friends. It's no longer what we just hear on the evening news or on some mass rallies that are terrified. No, the threat is real. The threat is among us. The threat is here. Young women have been defiled in the name of revelation and prophecy, and some have ended up pregnant. It is a real threat. Today we have so many Christians who once followed Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord, but have since turned their backs on the Christian faith, believing that God lied to them. What they do not know is that what they received in the name of prophecy was never from God. It was the invention of the so-called man of God. And you see, God is not obligated to fulfill the whims of your prophet. God is committed to fulfill his promises. If God has not promised, you're not going to blackmail him to give you something simply because your prophet said. But these days, the prophet and God seem to be sandwiched together. When the man of God speaks, it is assumed God has spoken. When the promise does not come to pass, what is the conclusion? God has failed. And as a matter of fact, so many believers are turning away their backs from the Christian faith because of the damaged witness of these false teachers who come in the name of the Christian faith. Now, perhaps you have this same question on your mind. We hear you. We are seeing some of these things in our midst. They bother us too. But we don't know what to do. What do you think the church can do today to appreciate the need for biblical discernment, to develop it amongst its members, 
so that God's people are able to tell right from wrong, truth from error. What can we do? Let me suggest a couple things. Number one, we need to first of all recognize that discernment is a necessary fruit of discipleship. That when God's people are being grounded in God's truth, they will obviously grow in God's grace and understanding. It begins right from there. That if God's people have not been taught God's truth, then they cannot be set free from the deception of the evil one. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14, the apostle Paul talks about the spiritually immature who are pitifully tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine and clever deceivers. He says that if believers are not mature in the faith, anything that comes their way, that almost looks like, will easily take them. We have the same concern that Paul voices out in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. He expresses his concern for the Corinthian believers. And mind you, these are men and women that have already confessed Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord, gathering at the church at Corinth, but when Paul writes to them, he says, I am afraid. I am concerned that you Corinthian brothers are about to be led astray from the simplicity of the faith that you had in Christ. And why? In verse 4 he says, that for if someone comes to you and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or a different spirit that we did not proclaim, or a different gospel that we did not preach to you, you easily put up with him. And what Paul really is saying here is that there is something such as another Jesus, a different spirit, a different gospel. They have the same names and same terminologies, but different meanings and dictionaries. And he's saying your problem, brothers, is that you don't know how to tell the difference. Anything called Jesus, you run. Anything named the gospel, you embrace. The man of God preaches what is not biblical, you give him a hug. And you say, what took you so long to proclaim these mysteries of the kingdom? And Paul says, brothers, I am concerned that you are about to be led into astray. And you know what is interesting in verse 3? Is how the apostle Paul describes the danger that they are in. He takes them way back to Genesis chapter 3. And he compares their danger to what happened in the Garden of Eden. He says, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent, you also are about to be led astray. Now, if you think for a moment, how was Eve deceived by the serpent? Do we see the serpent come in the Garden of Eden and introduce himself like this? <coughs> My name is Satan, or originally called Lucifer. You know I have issues with God who created you. We don't see eye to eye. By the way, have you ever considered instead following me and I give you bigger and wonderful things more than God has for you? If he had said that, I doubt Eve would have listened one more second. <laughs> Probably she would have run as fast as her legs could take her. But you see, when Satan comes, he first of all agrees with God. He seems to appreciate what God has done. But then slowly, in a subtle way, begins to poke holes into what God has said. 
Did God really say, and the key word being really, if are you sure you understood what God said? Could it be well that he said it, but maybe he meant something else? Are you sure it wasn't a figure of speech that you need to interpret within the context of your culture here in the Garden of Eden? (laughs) What if you misunderstood God? If begins by trying to correct the serpent and says, no, 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 actually this is what God said. But then she begins to say, hmm, by the way, is that what God said? Okay, well, maybe he said it, but is that what God meant? Well, well, if that's what he meant, but what does it mean for me? How does it apply to me? She's still there, probably fighting with thoughts in her mind. And Satan says, ah, relax, Eve, you take things too seriously. Let let me tell you, in fact, there is a secret I think you need to know. If God were really your friend, he should have told you this. Did you know that in fact, if you take off the fruit of the tree in the garden, you will not die. Instead, let me tell you what will happen to you. You will be like God. Special revelation, right? Something you had not known before. Something God had hidden from you. You now have a friend who understands the secrets of God and he is happy to share with you what God didn't want you to know. What a wonderful friend, right? And then we are told, when Eve looked at the fruit, it was pleasing to the eyes. Moreover, good for food. She picked it. She ate it. She gave to Adam. And like they say, the rest is history. What is happening here? Is this a denial of what is true and good? Not necessarily. It is a subtle distortion of what is good and right. Satan claims like he agrees with it. Then along the way, he diverts, deviates slowly but surely, and the end result has nothing to do with God's original intention and will. And Paul says, brothers in Corinth, just like Eve was deceived by the serpent, I am afraid. You too. And what is the antidote to this deception? Discernment. That you must be able to discern. You must be able to tell the difference between the true Jesus and another one. The true Holy Spirit and a different one. The true gospel and a different one. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 14 talks about the spiritually mature. And the author says that the spiritually mature are able to distinguish between good and evil and are able to receive nourishing and strengthening, which is called, doctrinally he calls, solid food, which is for the mature. That the immature are tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine. But the mature who have eaten solid food are stable, are firm, are nourished, are strengthened. Why? Because they are able to distinguish between good and evil. We must understand that if we want our congregations to be biblically discerning, we must spend more time intentionally discipling them. The more they are rooted in truth, the more they will grow in biblical discernment. Number two, we must recognize that discernment is literally a spiritual survival skill in today's world. 
When we talk about discernment, we are not talking about an option on the banquet table. You may choose it, you may not, depending on your mood and hunger. No. We're talking about the spiritual survival skill. That the times in which we live demand that believers be spiritually discerning. Because no matter where you look, you are going to need that skill. When you put on your radio, you need that skill. When you put on your TV, you need that skill. When your children go to campus and come back home, you need that skill. Because they are going to be asking you questions you hadn't thought about before. They are going to be coming back with teachings that almost look like what you taught them, but actually is not, no matter where you look. Discernment has become a must-have for believers of all ages. Number three, we must equip pastors and lay leaders to train others, especially their congregations, in apologetics and biblical discernment. That these pastors and lay leaders are able to ground God's people in biblical truth, to help them understand scripture and how to interpret it, to help them grow in understanding essential doctrine, especially the non-negotiables of our Christian faith, that grounded in this, they may be able to stand firm on it and defend the Christian faith. And especially with a key focus on the young people who have a hunger for spirituality, but don't know where to look or are already looking in the wrong places, have so many questions that their pastors are not able to answer. And these days, when a young person comes to a pastor and asks a question, the pastor doesn't know. Of course, he does not want to admit that he hasn't read about it. So the best he can do is to either tell the young man, pray, God will reveal it to you. (laughs) Oh, you see, these things are based on faith. So believe God more. And I keep wondering, how, how much faith does one need to have in order to understand biblical truth? And some of these pastors will even scare you, by the way. Either they will tell you that you are stubborn and hard-hearted, you need to develop some humility, how dare you challenge your pastor. But no matter what, they really don't answer their questions well. And where do these young men go? They go to whoever will at least convincingly answer their question. And usually it is these opportunistic heretic teachers. We also have another category of vulnerable people, women. You may notice that in our education, especially here in Africa, most women do not have opportunities for theological education. In most cases, some of these women do not even work. They are stay-at-home mothers. And when the cultists come, do they come to the Bible school? No, they go at home. And for your information, these days they are shrewd, even if you are a pastor. They will stand somewhere not far from your gate and wait for you to go for your duty. And after you have gone, they will knock on your door and spend an hour or two with your wife and kids. What are they teaching them? Is your wife prepared to answer their questions? Can she tell the difference between what they are teaching and what hopefully you have been studying with her, assuming that you have? Women are very vulnerable, yet women are very critical in the fight against error, especially because of their numerical numbers that almost in every church you will find like two-thirds of the congregation are women, meaning that what they believe matters and has a huge influence on the rest of the congregation. Women spend more time with the children than the fathers. What that means is that if the mother is in error, 
her world view is going to be in the children and therefore the children will be what? The children will be in error. It is not uncommon today to meet pastors whose wives go to a different church and in most cases a heretic church. You have a pastor of a traditional church. His wife spends most of her time at a prophetic meeting somewhere. Families are getting divided over this. Marriages are getting destroyed over this. And the sooner we equip our people, especially in essential doctrine, so that they are not easily led astray, the better for all of us. We need to teach them discernment from scripture and to do so both topically and expositionally. Both of these perspectives are very important. Some examples. For instance, we could teach them how to spot a cultic group and their leaders, either by looking at their messages or their motives or their methods. In a typical family, if a group of so-called missionaries knocked on their door and they begin their conversation, can your family immediately recognize that something is not sinking, either by what they are saying or how they introduce themselves or the methods they use? or the language they use. Do you have some of those things that you have taught your family members that if somebody comes knocking on your door claiming to teach you the gospel, here is how you can quickly recognize whether you are safe or not. It is very important. We can, for instance, share with them ways to biblically test a so-called prophet or apostle. If someone comes claiming he's a prophet or God has sent him as an apostle for this generation, do we have ways in which we test the credibility of this man or woman? First Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 19 to 22. The apostle Paul talks about the need to not despise prophecies. And he says do not despise prophecies but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every appearance of evil. One of our projects to students at the Africa Center for Apologetics Research is called Test Before You Trust. And we get it from this very passage. That we are committed to equipping students, especially at university campuses, to learn to test everything they hear before they can trust it. Believers need to know how to test and we need to teach them in so many ways and so, so different methods on how they can easily identify, easily recognize somebody's teaching or behavior or manner or method so that they are not taken captive. We need to, for instance, point out some of the common errors in these false groups that they are likely to quickly encounter. Uh, again, Bowman has written some article called the nine enemies of truth in which he identifies the different ways in which false teaching manifests itself. He identifies them as false gospels, false doctrines, false miracles, false gods, false Christs, false spirits, false prophets, false apostles, and false teachers. Now, I am sure that you could dig through the pages of scripture and find many more ways in which they manifest, but these are major these are common, and for all these, the Bible has numerous warnings about these categories of false teaching. Do our church members know them? When our people are aware of danger, they understand the importance of guarding themselves. Especially in our day, where preaching seems to be the feel-good approach, where we want to talk about God's love and not about God's justice, 
God's prosperity, but not talk about the fact that he could judge sinners. As preachers, we need to be all the more very careful that we do not just talk about the good and positive side of God and we forget the negative one because the two are all necessary. We need to talk about safety in the Lord, but we also need to recognize the danger in the world. A good preacher will not only expose the scriptures, but he will also expose the error. So that God's people are aware of the error, but even more importantly, they find comfort in the scriptures that have been exposited. We need to address misguided resistance to biblical discernment. It is not that many people are not aware that there is such a thing as biblical discernment, but for many different reasons, they either are indifferent to the practice of discernment, or they do not think it's a necessary tool in the toolkit of every believer. And this is both on the leadership level and the lay followers. So how do we address this misguided resistance? And what is what kind of resistance really are we talking about? Among the pastors, there is always the fear that if you teach people how to discern, you are encouraging fruitless controversy and division. You are creating critical people who are always seeing mistakes no matter where they look. So you want people who don't discern, or who at least mildly discern, so that they are not overly critical. And I want to believe that even some of us pastors, we are afraid to teach discernment because we don't want a congregation that challenges our theology or our ethics. We want to be the big man above and beyond accountability. If anybody asks you, they become a threat. Either you promise them blessings so they keep quiet, or you threaten them with curses so they leave your church. In an environment like that, we can see why discernment would be resisted. But we also have pastors who fear encouraging the lay members to search the scriptures because what if they find some uncomfortable things and start asking questions we are not able to answer? The Bible has so many uncomforting things that we, we wish would remain uncovered. And sometimes when a church member says, Pastor, I have a question, you're like, oh boy, oh boy, I wonder what is coming now. In a congregation like that, you won't want to encourage the discipline of discernment, certainly. What about lay believers? What is the problem? Why is it that they resist biblical discernment so we can know how to help them? Well, sometimes these believers will resist biblical discernment because of not knowing why it is a priority and responsibility. Some think, well, discernment is for the pastors who are in charge of spiritual leadership, but we, the members, it doesn't really matter. After all, we are followers. Some of these members do not understand why it is important to defend the Christian faith, that the defense of the faith is equally a priority for the believer. And you see, the battle for the faith does not really begin until discernment has kicked in action. You cannot defend what you don't understand or you don't know. So if you are going to be a defender of the faith, you first of all have to be discerning. And for you to be discerning, you have to be discipled. So there is some kind of ladder that, that, that you step on. Discipled believers are able to discern and to tell the differences. And because they can see where the error is, they are able to defend what they know to be true. Very important. That if people do not understand that the defense of the faith is a priority, they don't think discernment is something they need to develop urgently. 
Some of these people may not even be aware that they are personally in danger of false teachings. Especially because, as I said earlier, false teachings and their teachers are always not obvious. Nobody comes to you and says, I am an agent of the devil, I'm getting as many followers as possible to hell, would you like to join us? No one ever says that. If you move around Pretoria and ask for an address of a cultic church, you are never going to find any. In fact, if you are not careful, they will show you your own traditional church that it's the one which is cultic. I, I once met some missionaries, actually, Mormon missionaries. They asked me the church I was coming from, and I had been preaching at an Anglican church. It was called St. Philip's Cathedral. So they say, so where are you coming from? I said, I'm coming from St. Philip's Cathedral. Then they looked at each other and smiled, and they said, for us, we come from the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So in other words, they were telling me, you, you were church, St. Philip's. And our church, the church of Jesus Christ, which one do you think is the better church to join? <laughs> Philip's church or the church of Jesus? <laughs> Moreover, not just the church of Jesus, but of latter-day saints. Not the ancient ones, right? Do, do you see what they're saying here? So sometimes, the, often false teaching is not going to be obvious. No one is ever going to come out direct. They all look closely Christian. Sometimes they exercise Christian disciplines even more than average believers, by the way. Some of these guys pray more than you have ever prayed. Some of these guys read their Bibles more than you do. In two minutes he will throw a hundred disconnected Bible verses, but at least he will convince you that he has gone through his Bible. In most cases, these guys lead exemplary and moral lives. Some of these guys will love you more than your mother loved you. And you will wonder what took them so long to come and rescue you. <laughs> you start looking at your mother as an enemy. You have found a new family in this group. But because of this subtle uh, identification of these false groups, many people may not be aware that they are personally in danger or they are being slowly inoculated into false teaching. And that is why we need to wake them up by helping them to develop discernment and to begin to see that there is danger lurking around them. But we also note that sometimes there is a misunderstanding and misapplying of biblical warnings and commands. So many believers today who resist biblical discernment do so on the basis of scripture, but which has been twisted out of context. I am sure you have heard of some people, for instance, who have used Matthew 7, you do not judge, or John 8, anyone who does not have sin should cast the first stone. So every time you say, so and so is a false teacher, they say, why are you judging a brother in the Lord? Haven't you read Matthew 7 or John 8 verse 7? You think for you, you are holy and perfect. And if you are not perfect, why do you go around looking for those who are not imperfect? They see you as a critical brother who sows seeds of division and you shouldn't be among them. And then we have some prophets and apostles today who are using Psalms 105, verses 13 and 15. Do not touch the Lord's anointed. In other words, the assumption is, I am the anointed of the Lord. And the scripture says what? Do not touch the Lord's anointed. And of course, when you look at this psalm, it has nothing to do with modern prophets and apostles today. It is a verse taken out of context. 
Then you have those who use Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. See to it that nobody takes you captive through philosophy and, and the elemental spirits of the world. And then they capitalize on that word philosophy. Why do you like arguing so much? Every time we start talking, you bring the Greek word, you pull out the Hebrew rendering of this passage. Why are you always arguing and debating? You are, you, are, you are the people causing us problems. Can't we just love one another? Huh? Must we always be looking at the differences? The man may have said it wrong, but he said it in Jesus' name. Can't we at least unite in that phrase, Jesus' name? You have those who are saying, do you really have to capitalize on certain words? You mean for all the two hours he preached... All the good things he said are nothing. All you remember is the one sentence that he said. Come on, brother. 99% of his sermon was okay. Shouldn't we at least give credit where it is due? And that sounds nice, of course. Until you look at that one statement that he got wrong. Is it a non-negotiable of our faith or not? I usually ask these people who challenge me. I ask them. If I came here and I found you on a hot sun and you are very thirsty, I want to give you a Coke soda. And as I open it accidentally, some of the glass particles fall into the soda. Now, of course, the honest man that I am, I confess to you that while I was opening it, some few glass particles fell into the soda. And then I go ahead and I convince you. But anyway, they're just small glass particles. Please, enjoy your soda. It's refreshing. Would you drink it? And of course, you know the immediate reaction. Of course not. Then I ask them, if you want to drink a whole sweet, nice, refreshing Coke, just because a few particles of glass fell in, why would you be willing to accept the teaching of this man simply because it is 99% okay, but with some particles of error? Why? How come that you are more careful when you are going to drink a soda for which you will be thirsty again, but when it comes to God's word, you have excuses? You hear of people saying, well, don't criticize that apostle so much. You know, he's not a theologian like you. And then I'm asking myself, you know that I am not a medical doctor, right? What if you were sick and you came to a clinic and you found I'm the one in the doctor's office? And I told you, well, I am going to treat you, so tell me how you're feeling and we begin. But just so you know, I really never studied medicine. Uh, would you go ahead and allow me to treat you? <laughs> so how come when you go to the hospital, you insist on the credentials of the doctor and you want to make sure that he is properly trained for the job? But when it comes to spiritual matters, moreover eternal life, you are keen to excuse the pastor that it's okay for him to make mistakes because he never went for training. So if he never went for training, what is he doing in the pastor's office? Just like an untrained doctor should not be in the clinic at all. But people will quickly excuse the pastor, but they will have no grace for the man who claims to be a doctor without training. So many excuses, but very real, very serious, and therefore we need to do something about this. Some of these people are living in denial and indifferent. They are thinking, well, we know that error is there, but for me, I know I am safe. Mm -hmm. 
Me, I study my Bible, I pray, I don't go to those prophetic churches, so why would I worry so much? I know they are never going to come and deceive me. But what they are not realizing is that deception is not just about you being affected. At the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, we have a saying that false teaching is like HIV AIDS. If you are not infected, you are affected. At least you know somebody who is involved. And in most cases, people in false religious groups are not strangers. They are not just numbers. They are people we know. They are brothers and sisters. They are husbands and wives. They are colleagues we studied with, we work with. They are people we care about. So yes, you may not be infected, but you are affected. And if for no other reason, you owe it to your friends, to your loved ones, to your relatives, to challenge them to rethink where they stand so that they do not be victims of erroneous teaching. We need to emphasize the ways that equipping for discernment benefits every believer. Sometimes people resist biblical discernment because they don't quickly or directly tell what the benefits are for being discerning. They need to understand that discernment is a very, very important skill for every believer. That the study of Christian doctrine is not an option, but one that is relevant, that is practical, that is unifying, that is spiritual, that is knowable, and therefore worth our attention and time. They need to understand that knowing what you believe and why you believe it gives you confidence in evangelism, and especially as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission. That you go out to share the gospel with people, and you can only do so with confidence if you know the what and the why of your faith. Believers need to know that knowing what you believe and why you believe it not only gives you confidence in evangelism, but gives you strength and comfort in trials. And now, that is a very sobering statement. Because at the heart of the battle for the faith is the question of a broken and decaying world. That one of the major questions believers must struggle with is the question of suffering, especially Christian suffering. How do we make sense of our suffering? Especially when we read the promises in the scriptures about God's protection and preservation and his ability to perform miracles and to heal us. Why is it that Christians continue to suffer, continue to die, lose their jobs on account of their integrity, are segregated in society on account of their beliefs? How do we make sense of this? In times of trials and challenges, Christian doctrine becomes foundational to how we respond. Every time I look through the book of Job, I can't help but wonder how he would have responded if he didn't have an relationship with God. God has taken away everything, working through the devil and other natural forces. And what is Job's response? The Lord gave, the Lord has taken, blessed be his holy name. Right away, he runs to the sovereignty of God. He recognizes that from beginning to end, everything he was and had was an act of God's grace. He is able to trust that if the God who gave and has taken away, he is the one who has taken away, he has a purpose, and that purpose cannot be a wrong one. Job is able to rest on the foundation of God's sovereignty, of God's love, of God's faithfulness. But what does the wife do? The wife comes 
looks at all they have lost, looks at this man with scratching himself with broken pieces of pottery, and he says, Job, are you still trusting God? Why don't you curse God and die? What is the wife saying? God was only good and relevant when he gave us the things we wanted. But now that we can't have what we want, this God has become irrelevant and outdated. It's time to move on to the next alternative option. And do you know that so many believers are behaving like Job's wife today? So many believers have become, I call them, butterfly Christianity. Christian is jumping from one church to another, congregation to another, and what are they looking for? For the God who does what they want him to do. They have a, a pastor who prays for their healing. There is one who maintains their marriage when they are in trouble. There is a prophet who is praying for their finances. There is another one who prays for the wife when she's pregnant. They seem to have a God for each and every crisis around them. And the God who does not work, they leave that church and move to another one next son. Job's wife, theology. Christian doctrine is fundamental, especially in times of trials and challenges. And they are bound to come because ours is a broken world. Where you expect broken things. And we are going to be affected, whether saved or not. The question is, how will you respond when the moment of trial comes? And your theology will shape your thinking, will shape your response to the crisis. Believers need to know that knowing scripture and what scripture says about error not only prevents them from harm but inspires compassion for those who are victims of deception. It is one thing for us to protect ourselves from deception and make sure we are never taken captive. But how do we see, how do we understand and how do we respond to those people who are captives of these false religious groups? Do we judge them and think that those who go into cults are stupid and they don't know what they are doing? And by the way, that's a common mistake that we believers make. We look at a crowd is following a certain prophet and we think these people must be stupid. How could they follow a man who did not even finish primary five? But what we forget is that false teaching has nothing to do with academic level, by the way. In most cases, the people who are seriously involved in error are the highly educated fellows. For a man to start a cultic group, develop a doctrinal system that is consistent over the years, gather thousands of people and maintain them over the years, that man is not stupid. That man might be smarter than you. And when we forget that and we underestimate the intent and extent of deception, then we are bound to be misled or even, if possible, to become victims of the same. As we learn scripture, as we teach our members on the dangers and the error that surrounds us, not only do they learn to protect themselves, but they develop compassion for the victims of deception. They recognize that these men and women are in spiritual enslavement and therefore need spiritual solutions in as far as setting them free from these snares are concerned. Now quickly, let me go to another point before I bring it to a conclusion. And this is that we need to employ simple and memorable approaches to teaching. When we are teaching biblical discernment, how do we teach it that equally matters? Of course, we need to use scripture 
as we teach people how to interpret the Bible, the unchanging word of God in the midst of an ever-changing society and cultures. We need to teach them how to apply it in its proper context, like we were studying from the previous speaker. Sound biblical doctrine and theology, yet one that is thoroughly African and relevant to the context in which we live. We need to emphasize key apologetic-themed passages from the Bible that God's people can see how the authors of Scripture interact with the false teaching, how they engage it, and some of the ways in which they expose the error, but even more so ground the believers in biblical truth. And we have several Bible passages we could pick out. Passages like Matthew 7, 15, where Jesus talks about false prophets coming in as uh, as sheep, but inwardly are wolves. In Acts, we look at uh, chapter 17, verse 11, where we read about the Bereans who listen to the apostles' teaching. They do not believe him because he is an apostle, but they believe him because his message is consistent with the word of God. They daily, diligently, search the scriptures to see whether what Paul preached was true. And that is the spirit that must characterize the church today. Men and women who daily, diligently, earnestly search the scriptures. They want to know the truth. And they will only believe any other preacher in as far as his message is consistent with the teaching of scripture. We have a couple passages that I do not have time to go through. Like Second Corinthians 11, we talked about that. Colossians chapter 2, let no one take you captive. First Thessalonians chapter 5, we've talked about the need for testing. There are so many Bible verses we could look at. But as we do this, we don't only point or emphasize apologetic-related teachings in the Bible, but we also look at particular passages that are being twisted by false teachers so that we can give a corrective interpretation of these verses. For instance, if I was speaking to somebody who subscribes to neo-Pentecostal theology and buys very much into the prosperity gospel, I may want to share with him from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, which says that even though Jesus was rich, yet he became poor so that you who were poor might do what? Might become rich. What faith theology would be saying, it is your right to be rich because, look, Jesus laid down his riches so that you could receive them. He took upon himself your poverty. So if you are poor, it is your problem. If I am engaging people like this, I want to look for those verses in scripture that they are taking out of context so that I can discuss with them back and forth and they are able to see what is really going on. If they are reading Jeremiah 29 verse 11, I alone knows the plans I have for you. Plans of prosperity and not disaster. To bring about a future that you hope for. And of course they are quick to grab the prosperity word there. You see God has plans of prosperity. But when you open up the context and begin to ask them, whom is Jeremiah writing to? Where are they at this time as he writes to them? In exile, right? So for you to claim this passage, you need to be in exile, right? Brother, are you sure you want to go to exile so that you can claim this promise of prosperity? And when you open it up, they say, wait a minute. Mm. Mm. What is going on here? So in that way, you are not only helping them to see the loopholes in what they've been thinking about, 
but you are also offering a corrective, a proper perspective, a fair treatment of the context that they are able to develop discernment as they see the error and also what is true in that. We have the privilege of confessional creeds from church history that we can draw upon to affirm our believers in biblical doctrine as is summarized in these confessions of faith, and we do well to use them as well. In teaching them, we want to use methods that are sticky and memorable, that are not overly overwhelming because of the details, but things that they can easily remember and put to use when the occasion comes, like using numbers, like using alliteration, like usually when we teach about cult recruitment at the Center for Apologetics, we like to use the what we call the 3D syndrome, that cultists usually will either use deception or dependence or dread to draw you into their group and retain you. They are intentionally misleading you by concealing information that is negative about them. They are intentionally weakening your outside relationships so that the only family you have and can count on is the group in the cult, and therefore you are now totally dependent on them. Or they are intentionally creating deep fear that if you disobey or leave the group, you forfeit your salvation or you forfeit the benefits and privileges that the group was giving you. Now, because we put them in these, it's very easy for somebody to remember the 3D syndrome of how people are recruited and retained into cults. Deception, dependence, dread. There are so many ways in which you could use those, uh, that alliteration to help God's people understand, remain uh, remembering some of these things that have been told. And now finally, just to use friendly resources that are adapted to the layman's language and thinking so that they are able to understand and appreciate what you are teaching. One of the things that as a church in Africa that we severely lack are resources that are adapted to the African context and resources that are at the layman's level. If you find a good book, it is highly philosophical and academic that somebody on the street is never going to read through it to the end. And we have a challenge before us. How do we adapt these materials, simplify them as church leaders, make them adaptable to the local situation, if possible, translate them in different languages so that those who don't know English have the ability also to connect with God through their mother tongue. If we can make that initiative, look at those resources, adapt them, make them relevant for our congregations, then we will have resources that ground God's people in truth, that grow God's people in God's grace, that enable them to guard the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.